0: Standing Ready, the podcast that gives you an inside look at the untold history of the VA's medical innovations with your hosts Katie Della Sensory and Sean Spittler.
1: Hey, Sean, yes. I have a question for you. When did the first cardiovascular research unit open at VA?
0: Ooh, uh, cardiovascular, what was it?
1: So it's the Cardiovascular Research Unit. The establishment of a cardiology lab at VA.
0: I'm not going to pick a year. I'm going to try and think of of like t- periods of time. So, was it around World War One? No. No, but earlier or later? Later. World War Two. No. No, later than that. Earlier. Okay. Okay. So my answer is somewhere between World War One and World War Two.
1: Yeah. Do you want to <laughs> guess one of those decades?
0: So somewhere between like 1917 and 1940. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say somewhere in the roaring 20s. Oh, no. No.
1: A little bit later. A little bit later.
0: Uh, I, well, the 30s, I guess. That's that what I got.
1: It. <laughs> <laughs> really narrow that one down. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So the cardiovascular research unit at the Washington, D.C. Uh, VA hospital uh, opened in late 1935. So, this is an issue that VA has been uh, examining, involved with, uh, producing research on since that time. Okay. And since then, um, VA has produced hypertension studies uh, related to World War I, World War II veterans. Um, of course, you had the famous pioneering heart surgeon, Dr. Michael DeBakey, um, the invention of the cardiac pacemaker, uh, a device that has helped not only veterans but really the entire world
0: so the pacemaker came out of that that research institute
1: no well it came out of the buffalo hospital okay by a team of researchers and doctors there but it is a part of this long tradition of vas involvement in uh, cardiology issues so it really kind of gives you a foundation for just how long VA's been involved in, in these types of um, issues and just sort of the, all of the things that they have um, been working on that have contributed to not only veteran health, but the health of um, really the whole world. Think about how many yeah. people you know who have a pacemaker, and yeah. that originated at VA. So I think that's pretty cool.
0: So I just read some news today, uh, slightly adjacent to what we're talking about with a pacemaker, but Unrelated to cardiology, they have designed a pacemaker for your brain to help people with Parkinson's. What? It's crazy. So it it doesn't cure you of Parkinson's, but the pacemaker basically gets rid of the tremors.
1: Right. It regulates the brain in a way that the cardiac pacemaker regulates the heart. Yeah. It's fascinating.
0: When you told me we were going to do an episode on cardiology, I was not convinced that this would be entertaining, but... We're going to talk about three things today that I think are very fascinating because there is a transplant, heart transplant into a human involving a pig's heart. And then uh, the the person we're interviewing today is is Dr. Joseph Stelic. And he was involved in a surgery that I can't even remember how long the actual surgery. I think it was 18 hours.
1: It was, yeah, it was close to the 24-hour mark.
0: It was close to a full 24 hours. Yeah. And, and it involved three departments. And he talks about that in detail. And that's, I just think it's fascinating that you have a human being on a table with their heart disconnected. Well, you've got three completely different departments having to come in and kind of, they do their part. So he was a part of that. And then the third thing we're going to talk about is, is kind of heart attack prediction. There's, there's like a device that can actually detect. I think he said up to a week in advance that you might be having a heart attack next week. That's, that's insane
1: that's yeah it's it was such a great conversation with him and it really sort of like ties that tradition that is rooted in history of the va being a pioneer um in cardiology issues and so it's really great to talk with him and kind of see what's going on today and kind of go into the future with everything which i think is the whole point of the show so i think it's a great conversation and i'm really excited to jump in
0: me too all right well let's just jump in
1: Dr. Joseph Stellick has been on faculty at the University of Utah since 2004 and serves as Medical Director of the Heart Transplant Program and Co-Chief of the Advanced Heart Failure Program at the University of Utah Hospital and the Salt Lake City Veterans Affairs Medical Center. He's been active in clinical work, education, and research in the areas of advanced heart failure, heart transplantation, and mechanical circulatory support. Dr. Stellick, thank you for joining us on Standing Ready. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners and give us an overview of what you do?
2: Yes, uh, Katie, thank you for the introduction. Uh, It's great to be here. Uh, I'm Joseph Stelic, I'm a cardiologist. I specialize in treating patients with advanced forms of heart disease, something we also call heart failure. And that is a situation where the heart muscle is weak or impaired in some other way such that it cannot provide a sufficient amount of oxygen uh, to the whole body and, and that results in fatigue and shortness of breath and maybe swelling, low blood pressure uh, symptoms that, uh, that are concerning. Uh, the good news is we have a number of treatments how to help these patients. So, so what, uh, what uh, my uh, focus is, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a clinician uh, who helps these patients through different treatments, medications, heart transplant, mechanical assist support. Uh, I uh, also uh, am active in education. We have a lot of trainees and and train new generations of physicians like myself. And I also participate in research and have funded research to help patients with heart failure.
0: Uh, Can you tell us, are veterans more at risk for heart disease? And uh, regardless of yes or no, what are some issues you commonly see with veteran patients?
2: That's uh, that's a great uh, uh, question, Sean. So heart disease to some degree or some forms of heart disease uh, are, uh, can be related to gender and can be related to um, age. So heart failure per se increases in age, with age, um, uh, because there are conditions that can contribute to development of heart failure. And therefore in our veteran population, we actually see a high number of patients with heart failure because many of the veterans of course are older uh, there are also some environmental exposures uh, throughout life like high blood pressure, smoking, um, and others uh, that, that can increase the, the risk of diabetes, that can increase the uh, risk of heart disease and heart failure specifically.
1: Can you um, tell us a little bit more about cardiology as a field within VA. You know, the, the first heart transplant that took place at a VA hospital was in Palo Alto in 1969. Um, what advancements have you seen in your tenure?
2: Okay. Well, uh, so as uh, so a medical director of the transplant program, of course, uh, heart transplant is uh, something that's very close to my heart, no pun intended. Uh, uh, and uh, the VA has been, uh, integral part in advancing uh, treatment for uh, patients with with heart disease. And and uh, cardiology is a big field that that, that uh, takes care of patients with different types of disease. It can be conduction electrical diseases need for pacemakers. It can be blockages in coronary arteries and putting stents in and opening them up. Uh, and uh, the aspect that I'm most involved with is, is heart failure. And, and so I'll I'll, I'll focus my uh, discussion on on the advances in heart failure. So, um, it it took many years to really find out what causes heart failure and how we can diagnose it, and and we got better understanding of the disease. I would say probably in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, really modern understanding of co- what causes heart failure, and and there were, there have been, and still are. Three approaches how to treat patients with heart failure, and one is to try to find medications that could help the heart strengthen it and maybe even cure it. The other uh, arm is to assist the heart mechanically, so uh, such to say, if the if the heart muscle is too weak, can we come up with mechanical approaches to help it? So uh, such as left ventricular assist device, which is type of artificial heart. Or total artificial heart, which is full replacement of the heart uh, with a machine, and then the third approach is uh, for patients where medications are not working or less invasive uh, approaches are not working. Actually, replace the heart with a transplant. So, so use a donor heart uh, until very recently from a human patient, uh, and 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 do heart transplantation. And uh, within the, with the 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 the. VA has been very active in all three aspects, along with the uh, rest of the healthcare and investigative field. And uh, I uh, will start maybe by mentioning a highlight from 1980s, which was the first study of a medication that has been shown to prolong survival of patients with chronic heart failure. It was a VHEFT study. Uh, the V stands for VA. It was a VA cooperative study. And this medication or a combination of medication was a vasodilator called hydrolazine with nitrate, nitroglycerin that many of our listeners probably heard of this medication, but used in a combination uh, that has shown compared to placebo, which is uh, by then there were not that many treatments. So it's really just diuretics and maybe digoxin has shown to prolong life of our patients and the patients uh, live longer. And, and since then, this has really started a field of investigation of medical therapies that could improve the life of patients with heart failure.
0: That's really great. You actually uh, started to bleed into the, my next question, which was, uh, I was going to ask, can you talk about how technology has improved heart treatment? Um, but I'm going to go ahead and ask that anyway. Can Is there anything more that you can kind of shine a light on in terms of technology uh, and, and maybe looking to the future a little bit, uh, how, how technology might be improving heart treatment here in the future.
2: Mm-hmm. So, uh, so maybe I'll just finish my last comment to say that there are now many more medications that improve the life of patients of heart failure uh, that we use in every day. And, and so, so that's the medical therapy, but uh, going to more tech- technology as far as hardware treatments beyond medications, uh, uh, there, there have been great advances too. Starting uh, with special pacemakers that are called CRTs, cardiac resynchronization therapy, uh, that, that is a special pacing that, that improves the synchrony of the heart as it squeezes and provides cardiac output to the body uh, uh, to, to something that, that's, uh, that's uh, called left ventricular assist device where we have seen huge uh, advances as well. So, so left ventricular assist device is, uh, is, is is an artificial heart pump that's implanted and that assists the left ventricle to push blood out into the aorta, which is the largest vessel we have in our body. And and it's it's a mechanical device, and uh, it started with pretty bulky pulsatile devices that have been implanted, but has now transitioned to to what we call continuous flow devices, pumps that something uh, uh, similar of of a water pump that you might have at your home, a, a smaller device that continuously provides support. Uh, And and we've transitioned to the continuous flow devices uh, because they're smaller, they're more reliable, there's less moving parts, which means they're less likely to break down, right? When's the last time you heard about your water pump uh, breaking down at home? It typically doesn't happen. And and so we've taken this advantage in engineering to bioengineering, and now many patients live with these devices. The advancement has been that uh, they are much smaller uh and uh they they restore the uh the active lifestyle in many patients uh, who who by the time these devices are being implanted uh, cannot really do much. Uh, they have shortness of breath with minimal activity end up in the hospital a lot. So you might have seen these patients uh, in the store on the street. Many times you probably don't even notice these patients because the pumps are now very quiet and relatively small. The one uh, the one technological advance that we're still hoping for uh, to come soon is that, that right now, because the devices consume a fair amount of power, they need to have external batteries and external control or connecting to the device through what's called a drive line. It's really a power cord that leads from the device inside the heart to outside of the body. But as all technology is improving quickly, we are now uh, driving electric cars, uh, battery technology is improving. We are hoping that, that we can shrink down the battery size and, and use something that's called transcutaneous coupling. So recharging of batteries through the skin, just like when you throw your phone on, on a mat, that can recharge it. So similarly, recharge the batteries inside your body, that we will actually be able to get rid of that power cord, the, the drive line, and the whole system will be internalized, which will further improve the quality of life of patients who live with left ventricular assist devices.
0: That's really exciting. And it's something I wanna just kind of uh ask a follow-up on real quick because you you talked about getting these people active again um because maybe it's just my own perception going back a number of years but it was like if somebody had a heart surgery of any kind you know they pretty much had to take it easy for the rest of their life they didn't want to overtax their heart or whatever technology was inside of them are, are we at a point where we can move past that now or, where we're getting uh some sort of heart treatment or surgery uh, does not mean the end of being active?
2: That's, uh, I, I like that question and uh, we actually spend a lot of time thinking about uh, how to get our patients back to active lifestyle. So the simple answer to your question is yes, this has changed. And the more expanded answer to your question is I think we figured out uh, for a lot of especially acute illnesses of the heart or acute events in the heart. How to get those patients our patients through this critical period, so basically to have them survive uh, the the cardiac uh, cardiac event, whatever that that might be, and really our really most of our attention now is focused on not the surviving of the event, but really getting the patient's health back and quality of life back. So, so a lot of the innovations that are happening are actually aimed at improving quality of life. And, um, you know, our goal many times is, uh, you know, to, to have what we call forgettable uh, treatments. That means that the, you can forget about it. As you mentioned, well, I have a device, you know, I need to be careful. So try when it's possible. To set it up such that the patients can actually, for the most part, forget about having a device or forget about the limitation, and 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 be back in the active lifestyle and, and be able to do the activities they enjoy doing.
1: And kind of talking about all of these improvements and and how far we've come, um, you know, you mentioned the before the cardiac pacemaker, which was invented um, at a VA, and. Um, you know, the first heart transplant that took place at VA was just a year after the first one in the world had been performed. What is it about, you know, VA structure that sets it apart uh, to make it a leader in heart research and treatment?
2: Yes, so uh, I think uh, the VA aim is not only to provide excellent patient care, but also drive the patient care into the future. So most of uh, the VAs, including the one uh, that I work in, uh, the George E. Wallen VA in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, have not only clinical departments, but also research uh, departments. There's a a structure for funding of innovative research, and uh, I, I have been... Uh, I'm very uh, grateful to the VA. I've been recipient of several research uh, funding awards uh, from from the VA Health Sciences uh, uh, VA Research VA uh, Research Funding. Um, and, uh, and this allows investigators like myself to be active not only in clinical work, but also in research within the VA. The VAs also have academic affiliations with uh, institutions of uh, higher learning like universities. So for instance, here in Salt Lake City, there's a seamless connection between investigators at the University of Utah, investigators at the George E. Wall and VA Medical Center. The VA also has a strength that it's a large system, right? I think there's more than 150 hospitals and many more outpatient uh, facilities within the VA that provide uh, care. And so the VA has put a lot of thinking about how to set up treatment delivery, especially for more complex procedures like transplant in such a way that there are centers that have high level of expertise that can serve certain areas so patients can be referred. So so to your question, for instance, how, how come VA has become a leader in transplantation, I think uh, that goes back into the 1960s when Dr. Tom Starzl uh, was uh, a chief of uh, surgery at the Denver VA Medical Center and Dr. Starzl, uh, who is also sometimes called the father of organ transplantation. Uh, has spent a lot of research uh, in how to safely perform first kidney transplantation and then liver transplantation. And liver tra- he performed the first liver transplant uh, in the world, uh, initially on a patient that survived for a short period of time, but the first successful, defined by a survival more than one year. Uh, that was also by Dr. Tom Starkzell. And many of these patients received the transplant at the Denver VA. And, and back in these times once, transplantation has moved to more a uh, wider clinical applicability. The VA central office has actually set up referral centers within the VA medical center for transplantation. So uh, for instance, the sotl va is a national referral center for uh, the VA for heart transplantation. And we have provided heart transplant for patients uh, from actually most states in the United States uh, over the years and, and, uh, and uh, have patients from as far as Hawaii and Alaska to patients who live just a few blocks uh, from, from the VA Medical Center. And, and I think this system where you have a center of excellence and structure and appropriate funding actually promotes innovation as well. So, for instance, the Salt Lake City uh, VA program started in 1985. has been in continuous operation for since 1985. And in, in addition to providing heart transplant and and left ventricular support to patients with heart failure, we've done some very innovative uh, approaches. Uh, for instance, uh, we've last year performed a triple organ transplant—heart, liver, and kidney transplant—in a patient who was initially referred to as just for heart transplant, and then we realized needed also a kidney and a liver. So this was exceptional surgery. The patient's doing great uh, more than one year after transplant. We've performed, and, and this patient was a veteran, of course, we've performed a heart transplant in a veteran with HIV that was well controlled. And despite some of the concerns of the increased risk of infection after transplant in a patient with HIV, this surgery about three years ago uh, uh, was successful and the patient has been doing great. So so we are, uh, of course, willing to, to try innovative approaches to bring this uh, life-saving treatment to as many patients as we can.
0: So you just touched on my next question again a little bit, and I definitely want to make sure we take some time to talk about that here on the program, uh, because last year you were able to be a part of something that was rare and unique. And I want you to just tell us a little bit about the triple organ transplant that you, you are a part of.
2: Okay, I'll be happy to do that. So, so combined organ transplantation has been uh, performed with increasing frequency, uh, typically it's two organs, and that is because, uh, and to some degree, that might be actually a benefit also of our medications that maintain our patients uh, doing well, even with heart failure for a longer period of time. But when they eventually arrive at the need for heart transplantation, some of their other organs might have been uh, damaged as well. Uh, frequently, we see it in, with, with kidney dysfunction at the time of, of the need for heart transplant because heart and kidney, of course, are connected in how they work. Um, and and uh, so so it's a combination of patients being sicker and us probably being also more willing to take more risk. and, and uh, uh, have more confidence in, in, in our advanced procedures and processes to get these patients through surgery safely and get them uh, good long-term survival. So, so this specific patient was a veteran actually from the Arizona, referred to us through the National Referral um, uh, Program, as I mentioned, and initially the referring cardiologist, who we work with very closely, felt that maybe he'll need heart and a kidney because he had some kidney dysfunction, but what we've also identified that the patient had liver cirrhosis. In heart disease that, that uh, uh, is a chronic disease over time due to increased pressures that get transmitted back into the liver, a cirrhosis can develop as well. Most of the time the liver damage is not severe, but in this patient it was actually irreversible and he had true liver cirrhosis. So uh, we have, uh, of course, discussed this patient in great detail and reviewed uh, all information that's been out there. Uh, I think there's only about 16 transplants over 30 years of three organs that have been done over the past 30 years. And, uh, and uh, so it's an exceptional surgery. So we, our team got prepared for the surgery. We, uh, the one uh, of the things that allows... Innovative uh, approaches like this is a multidisciplinary team. So, our team has many, many people, probably about 50 healthcare professionals that come together when we make decisions like these, uh, prepare the plan for immunosuppression and for multidisciplinary care after the triple organ heart transplantation. And then, of course, it was identifying the right donor. And uh, as you know, there's a shortage of organs nationwide, has been for a long time. There's more patients who need transplant than those that. Uh, the donors that are available. And when you need uh, three organs at the same time, that becomes even more challenging. But uh, the patient lucked out and our team uh, was fortunate that we've identified a donor that was a good match for this patient. And uh, in combination with our colleagues from liver surgery and, and uh, kidney surgery and hepatologists and nephrologists, we have been able to perform this transplantation. So are,
0: are you, conducting a part of that surgery and then you exit and the next person, so you're doing the heart and somebody else comes in and maybe does the liver. How's that?
2: So typically the process is that uh, the heart transplant is performed first. So in this case, it was the cardiac surgical team that performed the heart transplantation and made sure that the patient did well throughout the surgery, immediately post-surgery. And once the, what we call hemodynamic situation stabilized, then the liver transplant was performed. And again, liver transplant surgery is a, is a huge, or it, it, it's a demanding surgery as well, uh, often with, with a lot of blood loss and blood exchange. So of course, immediately doing that after heart transplant, that presents some challenges, but that surgery went fine. And so a few hours later, uh, the, the kidney transplant was performed as the third, third part of the surgery. So, so to your question, yes, several teams changed hands in the operating room. And, and made sure that the patient did well throughout.
0: And you got to go home before everyone else.
2: Then, <laughs> yeah. How long
1: did a surgery like that take?
2: So I think in this, uh, in this patient's um, uh, case, it was close to 24 hours. When the kidney was finished, I think it was just about a 24 hours mark. And, and there were, you know, a couple pauses in between the two surgeries. The, the, adv- the uh, with, with donor organs, of course, Things have to be done expeditiously, and so with the heart we have only about four hours between the time that the heart is explanted from the donor and transplanted into the recipient. The liver and kidneys are a little bit more tolerant to what we call the ischemic time, so to the time when there's no active perfusion with oxygen and when the organs are preserved with cold preservation on ice, we could say. And and so that allows us to first do the heart, to limit the ischemic time, and then there's a little bit more time to work with for the liver and the kidney.
1: And the patient's doing fine?
2: The patient has not been readmitted uh, in one year since his discharge. So yes, he, he needed some rehabilitation, of course, after the big surgery. So he spent some time in our rehabilitation center and, and then was discharged home. And we've since been seeing him only in clinic, which is the way we like it.
0: That's amazing. Congrats on that.
2: Thank you. And, and of course, the patient has been a great advocate for care in the VA system and and uh, has been helping us talking to other patients in need of transplant surgeries as well. So he's been a great asset to our program in that way as well.
0: Wonderful.
1: And do you, you mentioned he was, you know, a part of the referral system. Has that system been impacted by COVID? Is it easier to kind of do? telehealth and things like that?
2: Yes, so, so COVID, of course, has been a huge disruption to how we do things. And most of the things has not been a welcome disruption, but one thing you mentioned has actually been welcome disruption. Uh, for for a long time, we've been trying to implement telemedicine in a larger, a larger spectrum of offering, offering care. I, I think the technology is here, but to some degree, it might have been, um, maybe lack of uh, our comfort with telemedicine, right? Because for so many decades, we are used to see the patient, touch the patient, talk face to face to patient, make the decisions based on that. But I think COVID uh, and the need to to limit the physical interaction of patients with the healthcare system, especially at the peaks of COVID, has actually pushed us to be much more aggressive with telemedicine. So so we've converted a lot of our appointments now to telemedicine and, and uh, they will definitely uh, be here uh, through post COVID era. Hopefully we'll get to post COVID era pretty soon and will will improve, I think the care and will make the care for patients who live far away from us, uh, very uh, more efficient. So, so uh, yes, telemedicine has been, a big part of uh, taking care of patients like, like the patient I, I discussed. And also what we have is uh, we have great partners in, in uh, the referring VA Medical Center. So, so the, the team taking care of him now at the Phoenix VA Medical Center we are in close contact with. We have uh, trust and confidence uh, in each other, and that has allowed for the patient to also reduce the number of needed physical visits and travel.
0: So we talked about the future a little bit earlier in the show, um, but can you just tell us what excites you specifically for the future?
2: Yes, I will be very happy to. So, and I would like to mention a couple things at least. And and so one is, uh, as I mentioned, that we have the three kind of pillars of treatment for advanced heart failure, medical therapies, uh, mechanical assist and, and heart transplantation. I think we are in a situation where these are coming together to some degree. Our interest in Utah is something that's called recovery of myocardial function with LVAT unloading. And it is that in some patients who need the uh, assist pump, artificial heart assist pump, we see that their heart actually improves. And especially when we are able to apply the correct medications on the medications that patients can now tolerate. And so a whole uh, research program has started here. And uh, for a number of patients, we've been able to improve their heart function and actually remove the assist device and and maintain the patients on medications alone. Uh, In this way, we have been able to either avert the need for heart transplantation for those patients who would have needed a heart transplant after the heart pump, or uh, for patients who would have kept this pump permanently in what we call destination therapy actually remove the pump and not have to deal with with the demands of the pump uh, for a patient whose heart has improved. So so I think into the future, uh, we have a lot of uh, hope that this will uh, be predictably uh, be able to be done in a larger number of patients. Another way where things are coming together uh, into the future, I think is use of uh, artificial intelligence approaches to how we treat our patients. And I would like to specifically mention a study that we are now conducting uh, within five VA medical centers that's called LINK-HF2. And that is based on a small wearable sensor that actually monitors the patient continuously. And in a previous study, we have been able uh, to show that it can predict worsening of heart failure about 10 uh, days before that happens, then about 10 days before, typically the patient would end up in the ER seeking uh, care and be admitted to the hospital. And and so uh, the, the prediction is based on an uh, artificial intelligence algorithm that has been used over, Tons of hours of data coming from these multiple uh, multiple physiological parameters from the patient and and the algorithm can can compare the predicted behavior of the parameters to what is observed, and when the observed deviates enough, it sends out a notification to the clinical team, and we are able to change therapy and hopefully prevent admission and improve the outcome, and that's what we are testing in this trial that will enroll 240 patients. So it's approaches like these non-invasive approaches, added approaches, and you can see how uh, in the future some of these decisions could even exclude uh, decision-making by a provider and how that can be built into an algorithm where actually the device makes a diagnosis, makes a suggestion, and the, the information goes straight back to the patient and tells them to change something. To, to, to very timely prevent, uh, make a change and prevent some adverse outcome. And uh, then uh, into the, looking into the future, there's also a lot of innovation in, in transplantation. Some of that is related to the type of organs we actually can use for transplantation. Uh, there are now approaches Uh, I mentioned before when we spoke that that when we explant a heart, we put it on ice, we preserve it cold and and immobile uh, for about four hours, up to four hours before we transplant it. Well, technological innovation now brought in um, uh, machines that can perfuse the heart in the time before between the explant and transplant. So so the heart can be placed on uh, such a machine and it will continue beating. Uh, and and the idea is that we can first we can have more time to perform the transplant, but also that hearts maybe that are not looking that great at the time of explant we can actually nurture to better better function, and this way we can transplant more hearts into patients who need heart transplantation. And and the last thing I will mention as for advances of heart transplantation that we all uh, heard on the news recently, and that is the. Uh, the pig to human heart transplant that was uh, done at the University of Maryland. And uh, that is a process, it's called xenotransplantation, so transplanting across species. And uh, research has been done probably for over 40, 50 years in this area because, of course, theoretically, having supply of safe organs from animals could save many lives. Uh, But in the past, the immune barriers were such that this was not possible, and by immune barriers, I mean that if if, a, if an organ from a different species gets implanted into a human, our immune system immediately recognizes this, this is something very different than what it's used to, and starts rejecting that organ. And even with immunosuppression, it's very hard to overcome that strong response. Well, innovation in in genetic engineering and gene editing has allowed us to do this great milestone. And, and here I will tie it back to Utah, Dr. Mario Capecchi, who received a Nobel Prize uh, uh, for his work at the University of Utah a few years back for the technology called gene knockout. Uh, his work has contributed actually to, to this ability too. So uh, for in, in, in pigs, the researchers have been able to edit out some key genes that produce these antigens, these ID cards on cells that uh, that basically when the cell presents is, I'm not you, I'm somebody else. Uh, and so 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 these have been edited out. So there's this immune barrier has been overcome. Also some of the viruses that are integrated into the uh, pig uh, gene system have been edited out and, and a few additional modifications done such that the first heart transplant that has been done uh, using a pig heart into a pa- uh, patient at the University of Maryland actually uh, has been performed and the patient is alive after the surgery. And, and so, uh, of course, we'll have a number of things still to figure out how to make this scalable. And, and, uh, and there's, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of ethical and regulatory issues to be figured out. I think this is something that will that is closer uh, to our ability to use it in clinical care, that it has been over the fa- past 50 years when research has been done in this area.
0: That's incredible. <laughs> I have so many questions on all of those things, but uh, we're out of time. But man, I would love to do another show just to just to pick your brain on those three things. But uh, I'll hand it over to Katie to close us out with our final question.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm still not over the, the device that can predict when you have like a heart attack. That's, that's just incredible to me and so amazing. So there's, there's a lot to look forward to in the future, it sounds like. But um, final question, you know, as, as a historian, um, I need to kind of ask what it means to you to be a part of this long tradition of both cardiology and transplant um, at, at VA. You know, the cardiac pacemaker, um, Dr. DeBakey, Hypertension studies, the first liver transplant that you mentioned, all of these have come out of VA. And, and how does that history inform the work that you do?
2: Well, I can tell you it's a great privilege. Uh, uh, it's the, the VA has, uh, over the years, had a vision to support clinical care and research, innovation, education in these areas. And that's why since I came to Salt Lake in 2004, I've been faculty at the VA and at the University of Utah and uh, our team has taken full advantage of what the VA has to offer to bring the best care we can provide to our patients. And of course, this this would not have been possible uh, without the innovation that you mentioned that has happened in the uh, VA hallways over the years uh, of improving cardiovascular care and, and organ dysfunction care.
0: Well, that's all the time we have. I can't thank you enough for being on the program. You've taken a subject I thought was gonna go way over my head and you've helped me understand it. It's been very entertaining. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Thank you very much.